a new war on cancer. It's much more attainable than we think. We have much more power than we realize. And that is today's show. Welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 354, and I have the wonderful investigative journalist joining me for a conversation about her book, A New War on Cancer. And I first came across this book actually quite recently. It only came out a few months ago in the US, but I'm always reading, expanding, looking at who is managing to get traction on the very subjects that you and I care about, uh, making healthy environments and healthy products and healthy farming to actually set a stage for health. What a crazy concept. And as we talk about in today's show, it is only just so recently that we made everything so unhealthy. And so we look today at Christina's book, A New War on Cancer, but of course, it's not just talking about the book. It never is when you uh, tune into one of the shows when I'm interviewing authors, because I really like nutting out the process of investigation into a topic, how they found people were responding more positively to certain messaging and certain cases for change versus others. And so we really dig into that kind of stuff. And those of you who've been low tox and part of the community for years will recognize a lot of what we're talking about. Those who might be a little bit newer to it all might realize, wow, maybe I could have a conversation with the daycare about the fake air freshener. Maybe I could have a conversation with the school about noticing that water damage in the classroom uh, or uh, changing how much screen time my kids are on with the EMF exposure on and on. We could go, of course. Um, I will point out a couple of resources I have Uh, that might be beneficial to you. Obviously, we've got a ton of past shows that we've done on toxic exposures, detoxification, things to avoid, really practical shows around environmental toxins, both in products, in farming, and in uh, our built environments. So head to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the bar where you see head to the index because you'll see there we have everything indexed to food, body, home, mind, holistic health, uh, uh, sustainability environment. So you can really head to those topics and explore exactly what you want to uh, binge listen to in this domain. It'll all be there for you. Much easier than sifting through 350 shows. Um, But I also wanted to offer you guys something special because uh, you're listeners of the show. Not everybody's done the Signature Golo Tox e-course, and it's a course I used to run live. kind of being badgered to running a live round again, but it won't be this year. So if you're listening live and you really want to dive in, get the ultimate black book on 22 different day-to-day topics and how you can reduce your environmental toxin exposures in each of them. So everything from cleaning, makeup, mold, dust, EMFs, uh, synthetic fragrances, 
uh, kids' topics, plastics. Uh, I could go on. There's 22 topics, so I'll be here for a while if I list them all. Uh, you have practical ways to do it, both for low-budget, low-time constraint situations as well as I want to swap everything and I want the best of everything today. So, And everyone in between, there's a lot of DIY versus great brand recommendations as well. And we have an international resource recommendation for Canada, America, the UK, and Europe uh, as a spreadsheet for all the topics too. So everybody's taken care of, not just the Aussies. And I wanted to give you guys $25 off. So it's only a 98 Australian dollar course. And with the code LOWTOX25, you will get $25 off. So it'll only be $73 for you if you're listening right now for the whole month of October. And what that translates to in euro, I think, is about 45 euro. Uh, in US dollars, I think it's around the 49.50 US dollar mark. Uh, and it is a fantastic, huge lifetime access resource. We've just moved to a gorgeous new platform. Uh, and uh, you have 40 different interviews on there in the library. And because we use Kajabi, you also can uh, add the course to your Kajabi app and listen to interviews on the run or access information really easily on the run as well. So Lotox 25 gives you $25 off Go Lotox. Now, Christina, just to give you a little bit of background as to how she came to write a book called The New War on Cancer, she shares a heartbreaking personal tale at the start of our conversation, uh, which, um, you know, so many people have a story similar to hers and her family's. But she was actually an investigative journalist and over a five-part series she did investigating environmental toxins and cancers, uh, she was then reached out to by a publisher saying, we really think this would make a great book. And that is just so exciting when publishers are brave enough to reach out about things uh, like uh, environmental factors and uh, how they're contributing to the increase of cancer because we know, unfortunately, that you cannot just explain this horrific rise of early childhood and young adult cancer to better detection. Sure, you might be able to in the 60 plus breast cancer category, but you absolutely cannot when it comes to the horrific amount of children uh, being given cancer diagnoses. And so something has to change. And I just feel so excited every time I get to make someone's voice louder who's doing great work in this space. So she's off the back of her US publicity tour and I've managed to get this hour with her and I know you will absolutely uh, love this chat and some of the things she found as she investigated different aspects of the research for her book. Uh, now, of course, we can't bring you a weekly show without our wonderful sponsors. The two sponsors at the moment are Australia only, uh, Oz Climate. I mean, hello. We just finished the Mold Festival as I as I share this show with you, and I can't tell you how common it is for people to not have literacy around how something as simple as an air purifier, good quality HEPA filtered air purifier like the Winix range or a dehumidifier to reduce the human impact of uh, humidity, showers, breathing while you sleep, cooking, uh, using a non-condenser dryer. I could go on. A lot of people just don't realize how easy it is to mitigate mold growth 
beyond water damage in the case of dehumidifiers, of course, uh, when it comes to the human impact of humidity in the indoor environment or the climactic impact of humidity on the indoor environment and mould starting to grow. Um, Or, you know, like even if you have water damage and you need to keep the humidity low so the problem doesn't get bigger while you're fixing the problem, a dehumidifier is honestly... I think if I had to let every low-tox gadget thing product go, my dehumidifier would be one of the last three items. It would be really tough to choose between that, uh, a good moisturizer, and a water filter, I think. Um, But, of course, if you are uh, highly allergic to mold or if you do find that you have seasonal allergies, as as I release this, it's spring here in Australia, My goodness, can an air purifier help? And we have one of the little compact four-stage air filters in both of our bedrooms. Uh, And I can tell you, since I put that into my son's bedroom with a dust mite allergy, no matter how much I cleaned, that uh, clear mucus just kept coming out every morning. And even with the dust mite covers, everything we could possibly do, we put the Winix in and it made a huge difference for him. So any families struggling with allergies, uh, the Winix air purifiers are just so good. And the compact four stage is such a great value product, especially with your low-tox life code for an extra 10% off over at ozclimate.com.au. And then all the month of October, we have one of my favorite low-tox brands, one of the OGs in the low-tox space, Walida. You have 20% off their whole range. And uh, your code is LOWTOXLIFE, making it nice and easy. And they have been a brand started in 1926, so dedicated to quality, sustainability, harnessing the power of plants, uh, teaching farmers around the world how to plant and uh, cultivate biodynamically, really really passionate about the work to prop up and uplift uh, local economies in uh, areas where people have struggled for decades. They have the UEBT sourcing with respect certification, uh, ensuring they nurture um, those communities that they work with to get their raw materials from around the world. Uh, and the trusted hero range, Skin Food, which, oh my gosh, we ran a giveaway on socials last week and it went absolutely berserk. The most popular giveaway ever to give you an idea of just how popular Skin Food is. Well, the Skin Food range, which grew a couple of years ago already to having the beautiful light lotion and the body butter and the lip balm, has now given birth to the face range. And I had the pleasure of going to the media launch. Uh, We were very generously given the range. Uh, So full disclosure, yes, I got it for free, but oh my gosh, the textures are beautiful. The cleansing balm for my perimenopausal skin that just decides it's dry one day, oily the next. Um, So, so good. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. So luckily for everyone listening around the world, you can access Walida. It's a global range. Uh, but for those of you who are here in Australia, you've got 20% off with the code LOWTOXLIFE, uh, obviously excluding already discounted products and packs, but um, go nuts, get your favorites, get do a little bit of a stock up. Can't recommend the shower bars enough, a totally plastic-free product, which is fantastic. And now let's talk about waging a new war on cancer and what you and I can do from our little corners. Hello, Christina. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? 
I'm good and I'm thrilled that you are helping us leash a new war on cancer because the current war on cancer ain't working. <laughs> yeah, and it's not going great. <laughs> it's not going great. Um, and we need to advocate for ourselves in our own little pockets of our lives and then also the piece on coming together to change how we're doing a lot of things across a lot of industries. So there is work to do. But as I always say, it's actually very recently that we got ourselves into this pickle and therefore it's a very recent phenomenon in history and therefore it's a it could be a quick fix if we were all committed, right? Is is that what you hope for as you start to advocate more loudly with the new war on cancer, the book and more? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. I think we're we're so kind of conditioned and prone to feeling like things have always been this way and so we're stuck. Um, and actually, you're right. A lot of this is actually very new when you're thinking about um, the long long line of human history. So um, the book is, you know, cancer is a tough topic, a heavy topic, but the book is very focused on solutions and um, the folks who are devoting their lives and their lives work to trying to solve this problem. Um, and I did that because, you know, I think when you first start learning about the extent to which kind of everything is giving us cancer. It can feel really overwhelming and scary and put you in a place of despair. But I found that when I um, talked to these folks who were advocating for solutions, um, it actually made me feel a lot more hopeful and optimistic and made me want to find ways that I could pitch in and contribute to this movement. And so I hope it does that for readers too. Well, if you as the author has ended up hopeful, I think that is hopeful within itself. So I'm, I'm so pleased you're sharing that. Um, I want to start by asking you what your personal attraction to investigating the subject of rising cancers was and for then undertaking uh, a book to to try and explore what we could do about that. Because Having written two books myself, it doesn't come easy. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of deep breaths and then compound that with the subject you've tackled. Why you, why this subject? Why did you feel compelled? My connection to this is um, very personal. When my younger sister, Abby, was 25 years old, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And um, it's very young for a cancer diagnosis and an otherwise healthy person. So it really caught our family off guard. Um, I'm just, we're very close. I'm just two years older than her. So I was also young and um, I was living abroad at the time. I was living in Taiwan, teaching English and trying to decide whether I wanted to stay there for another year or come home when she got her diagnosis. And I um, moved home right away and moved in with her to be with her and help out through her uh, treatment and her surgery. Um, she was one of the lucky ones. She had her thyroid removed and um, went through treatment and has been in remission for more than a decade, which I'm so, so grateful for. Um, but when when she got her diagnosis, her doctor said that thyroid cancer usually runs in families. And uh, it was a little unusual that no one else in our family had ever had it before. And they said in this kind of offhanded way that, you know, maybe um, in that case, maybe she was exposed to something in the environment that might've raised her cancer risk. But when we asked for more information, they really didn't have any more to offer. And when we kind of tried to go Googling, it was really tough to find 
any more information on our own. And I'm also an investigative journalist. So um, I turned to this question in my work and I wrote a five part series on um, how the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania region where my sister and I live has disproportionately high rates of certain types of cancer that are strongly associated with pollution. And this region also has um, historic issues with industrial pollution, but also ongoing issues with industrial air pollution and water contamination. Um, when people uh, think of Pittsburgh, sometimes they think of that like old timey steel city, super uh, horrible air pollution. You had to like change your shirt in the middle of the day. Um, yeah, like certainly... the smoke. I'm picturing the smokestacks in the movies. Then yeah, yes, yeah. It's kind of unfortunately the famous uh, image of this city. Um, and the Clean Air Act changed a lot of that, so the air quality is a lot better. Um, but we still have some um, uh, steel industry polluters that uh, release tons of carcinogens into the air in this region, and so. Um, I dug into that reporting and the series won a couple of awards and I got a very nice note from a publisher saying, congratulations on your awards. I think this uh, topic is really important. Would you be interested in expanding this into a book with a more national and more global focus? And for very long years later, <laughs> this is that book. So um I came to this, you know, it's not unusual to have a loved one or to have had cancer yourself at this point. Um, in the U.S., it's one in three Americans are expected to get a cancer diagnosis at some point in their, our lifetimes. So if it's not you, it's probably someone you know or love or are related to. Um, so I know I'm not alone in that. But um, yeah, that was what brought me to the subject. Yeah. And it kind of leads me. I'm sorry your sister had to go through that. Um and you guys consequently around her, it's, it's hard. And, and I guess it leads me to want to ask about childhood cancer right raises because they're perhaps the most striking uh, of what we're seeing. And I consider a 12, 25 year old, still a child, still so young. Um, and, you know, often you hear thrown around, oh, but we're getting better at diagnosing, you know, which I truly believe is a myth to explain away the tragedy that is occurring when it comes to cancer rate rises. What are the biggest environmental culprits that you've found as you've researched the book? Um, and it's so funny you should say that that little flyaway comment came from the doctor without much uh, uh, additional information for you guys because I was interviewing a mould technician just the other day who said this is a very personal calling for me as a profession because I had bowel cancer as a 20-something and they couldn't explain it in any way and threw out the term environmental factors without any further information. So it seems to be what they're bucketing for young people uh, when it comes to cancer. Yeah, unfortunately, um, most 
doctors don't get much environmental health education in the course of their medical education. And there are some groups that are working to change that, that are um, trying to get environmental health incorporated into medical curriculum, because otherwise, um, right, that's what happens. They're like, oh, I guess this could be a factor, but then they really don't know how to speak with patients about that any further. Um, but to your question about rising childhood cancer rates, um, I think you're right to flag that, uh, you know, around the world, we've seen a steady increase in cancers in children and young adults over the last 50 years. And um, for cancers like childhood leukemia, as you said, um, better diagnostic tools can't explain that away. That's the most common type of childhood cancer. And the basic diagnostic test for leukemia is the same now as it was in the 70s. So, um, you know, this appears to be a real and pretty rapid increase in childhood cancer rates. Um, and I, I spoke with researchers in the course of writing the book who really believe that kids are kind of the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to these issues. And, and one of the potential reasons for that is that in the last hundred years, more than 300,000 new manufactured chemicals have been invented. And these are, you know, brand new materials that didn't exist on the planet before this. And uh, some of them are really helpful. Some of them ha have treated diseases and given us access, wider spread access to clean drinking water. Um, you know, certainly not all manufactured chemicals are bad. Some of them are great, um, but the vast majority of them have never been tested for safety. And that's particularly true for their effects on uh, children and babies and fetuses. And then even uh, when chemicals have been tested and have been found to be harmful, they tend to stay on the market um, either indefinitely or you know for quite a while before we get around to uh, regulating them. So um, most of my examples are in the United States, but I know that in the last 50 years here, only five chemicals have been removed from U.S. markets because they've been found to be harmful of those 300,000 new chemicals. And the World Health Organization has identified more than 100 manufactured chemicals that we know can cause cancer in humans. So even when we know something is a carcinogen, um, we're oftentimes not regulating it, not taking steps to you know, prevent exposure um, in kids or babies or fetuses or their parents, which those parental exposures are also really important. And I also think it's important to mention that um, traditionally when these chemicals are tested and studied, um, researchers tend to look the, at them just one at a time and say, oh, well, if you're only exposed to this very small dose of this toxic chemical, which is you know, what we can allow for in consumer goods or in air pollution, then you should be fine. But in the real world, that's not how we're exposed to chemicals, right? We're exposed to dozens of these things simultaneously on a pretty regular basis. And uh, researchers have just started looking at the kind of combined effects of those exposures. And they're finding that um, it's not always just additive, that actually the way these chemicals impact, impact our bodies and our health can be um, you know, compounding and multiplying. So it might, rather than one exposure plus one exposure equaling a two on the risk scale, it might be like more like one exposure plus one exposure is a seven on the risk scale because of how those things are interacting with each other and in 
you know, your body. In your, in your tube of moisturizer. Yeah, the synergistic right. effect is so understudied. And what I found fascinating at the very start of your book was you cited um, Dr. Margaret Kripke, I think it was, um, and she was working with a, a leading panel of doctors to assess cancer and early cancer and her, her shock that only 1% of man-made cancer chemicals were appropriately tested for safety. Um, And it feels sad that this presidential um, panel was formed in 2008 and yet, and that these doctors were horrified and yet we're 15 years later and so little has been done. I mean, that, I mean, that is red tape, like, (laughs) It's awful. It's just, there's no no other way to say it than that is stupid and awful that we're not prioritizing this. Yeah, you're right. It's been we sh- we've known better for quite a while, and we're still not doing better, which is really frustrating. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a couple reasons for that. Um, here in the United States, we have a very powerful chemical lobby, and so. Uh, and that's kind of paired with this very anti-regulation sentiment that has been increasingly uh, prevalent in the last couple of years. Maybe you have something similar. We do. Um, and I think anti-regulation yeah. sentiment, it's, a, it's such an interesting topic to unpack because um, like, I absolutely believe that farmers should have the freedom to farm in brilliant regenerative ways without a shit ton of red tape. And I also believe that, you know, if there's an experimental drug on the market that's going to be used en masse, a, a pharmaceutical company should be far more uh, re- um, responsible for how that plays out for different people in their health. Uh, and people should be allowed to wait for more science. But then then when we look at chemical lobby regula- regulations, often a similar party that just wants no regulation, and yet you then see examples of regulation on something like books in libraries. And so it's like, well, if we want less regulation, we should want it for the less important things for personal, like for, to allow for personal freedom, and we should have more regulation when it's life and death. Um, and when it's it's and just when, bizarre to me that that's yeah, not logical to everybody, no matter who you vote for. It's bizarre. Yeah, mm. absolutely. It's a very strange thing that um, like certain politicians have been able to convince people that you know all regulations are bad when mm. actually um, we're all really dependent on regulations in a lot of ways to protect us from you know being abused in our workplaces or. Uh, mm. from having toxic chemicals in our food. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I agree. I wish, um, yeah, I wish we had a little more clarity about what types of regulations are appropriate and important. Mm, I think it's a really interesting ethical debate um, and one that I would like to see experts debate much more widely and publicly so that we can move forward overlapping in the right spaces politically, you know, less partisan stuff about the things that should absolutely not be partisan. 
which for me is absolutely chemicals used in our everyday, whether it's in medicines, whether it's in your moisturiser, whether it's in um, your building materials and on we go, all the things you've written about. So with that in mind, is there anything that you've found in, in your investigations that could help move policy change? Is there any hope that you're seeing? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of hope. I think we're at a really unique moment where um, consumers are kind of becoming more and more aware of this issue and uh, starting to demand better. And we can see evidence of that in, you know, the existence of products like Clorox Greenworks, um, you know, that you can go to a store and right next to the super toxic bottle of cleaner is the same company making a pretty decent non-toxic one because consumers have made it clear that they wanted that um, and that market pressure has been created. And then I think in terms of, you know, market pressure alone isn't going to get us there. We actually need to regulate these these chemicals if we want meaningful protections. Um, And I think a big one comes down to restricting the power of the chemical lobby and campaign finance reform, certainly in in US politics and greater transparency in government in general so that um, we can know if our lawmakers are getting big checks from the companies that want them to keep regulations lax in a way that can be harmful to our health. Um, I also think there are parts of the world that are not doing a perfect job of this, but doing a much better job than we are here in the United States. Um, The European Union has much more stringent chemical regulations than um, the US and many other parts of the world. So we also don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, there are already nations that are effectively more effective. It's not perfect there, but they're much more effectively regulating harmful chemicals um, and taking more of a precautionary approach. Um, So those models exist that we could We can share the science and and use it. Right. And legislate with it. And I think I remember seeing, was it The Human Experiment, a brilliant documentary film a few years ago, where there was an ingredient in a sunscreen and it was found that the politicians were being bought off. And we have, I mean, it's America light here in Australia when it comes to chemical lobby. We're just a a slightly less um, obvious version because we're smaller, but um, those things are happening here too. And the um, industrial, in the chemical industries are largely allowed to self-regulate and uh, research. And I think it's so great that you bring up that hedge betting in the marketplace that's popped up where we have the same thing, you know, our, our, our chief uh, laundry liquid Omo uh, now has Omo Green and it's the green packaging. But the the other crap is still on the shelf. It's not like they're getting rid of it. Um, they're just wanting to own both consumers and uh, and you see it in eggs. You've still got the cage eggs next to the organic eggs, same farm. Uh, so just so much hedge bedding. But it kind of makes me hope that that's the baby step that they commercially need to protect themselves from going completely under in this transition of consumer awareness growing Um, And then hopefully there will just be the great option at the end of this. 
And I guess, you know, in some ways that would be another good incentive for better regulations. Look, they yeah. already have alternatives. They already have safe alternatives. They're side by side on the shelf. Why don't we just make it just the one that's safe for people that's available? Mm-hmm. I think it'll be very brave companies, the big ones that actually realize the potential of that PR in crushing all of their competitors from the old mainstream set. Uh, and I, I, I'm actually shocked it hasn't already happened. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see, you know, companies like um, Beauty Counter is a cosmetics company that's um, uh, really focuses its advertising on being toxic free. And I was just reading that here in the United States, they also do a lot of advocacy for um, regulations that would require, you know, more stringent chemical regulation of what goes into cosmetics. So they're kind of going above and beyond uh, just saying, you know, we're not going to put these substances in our products to actually saying, and we don't want anyone else to be able to put harmful substances in their products either, because it's not good for people. And I think that's, um, and of course that endears them to consumers who care about this issue. So I think, I think you're right. I think that's the future. Mm, Totally. And in the book, you talk about some really practical ways for us to look at different parts of our lives and our kids' lives. Uh, I love that you brought up playgrounds and daycares um, because these are obviously um, places where children are getting these diagnoses. Um, What did you find in those types of areas where our kids are hanging out a lot um, when it came to materials that could be potentially causing harm that we can start looking into ourselves and advocating for? One of the big ones is pesticides. Um, Those facilities, you know, have to be kind of insect and rodent free for obvious reasons, for the safety of kids, for food sanitation reasons. Um, But if they're using kind of traditional toxic pesticides, those are very clearly associated with childhood cancer risk. Um, So, uh, one thing that those facilities can do is look into like an integrated pest management system that doesn't use toxic chemicals to control and limit pests. Um, Another one is cleaning supplies that we were just talking about. Um, A lot of times these facilities have requirements around kind of how often they sterilize or clean surfaces. Um, But if they're using things like bleach uh, that can release chloroform, then, you know, that's not good for young lungs. And so um, air filtering is really important in those facilities, as is using non-toxic cleaning products. And then, you know, there's the stuff that you think about a lot at home um, that that I think we maybe don't think about when we send our kids off to daycare or preschool, um, which is like, is there lead paint? Are there lead paint chips on the floor? Are they playing with toxic um, art materials or toys? Um, Idling is another big one. Um, Traffic related emissions are really strongly linked in the scientific literature to childhood cancer. Um, And that's true for exposure in kids, but also exposures in their parents, both before and during pregnancy. And um, so some daycares will initiate like an anti-idling law so that you don't see a line of cars waiting to pick up or drop off kids. And they're all just running their engines. Oftentimes when that happens, it's in a little kind of semi-enclosed area. And then there's just this buildup of, of 
traffic fumes. fumes. Yeah. Right. That kids are breathing. Um, so there, there are some good organizations that are trying to make it really easy for daycares and, and early child care centers to do these kinds of things. They have like online checklists and programs. Um, here in the U.S., they'll give them like a certification that they can then advertise and say, we're an eco-friendly child care center, eco-healthy, eco-healthy child care programs, the one I'm thinking of. Um, and here's what that means so that parents can see, oh, here's the 30 steps they took to try and protect kids from harmful exposures when they're in daycare. Um, and, you know, ideally that those types of things would become um, regulations so that that those uh, facilities would be required to follow some of those steps in order to, um, in order to stay open and operate. Mm, so good. So good. I mean, it's so easy to turn off your car. Um, yeah. Better for the environment measures, as well. Right. Right. A lot of these measures are either free or they're really cheap. It's not like big renovation level stuff. It's just like small tweaks that can make a big difference. For sure. And something that I noticed um, when my child was at Z in junior school, I think you guys call that elementary, maybe, um, little little kids, uh, and they did a renovation of one of the classrooms over the summer. And it was like, it was an old little school. And uh, um, a, a few of us just chipped in and got an air filter for the classroom because, you know, they could have been lead, paint, dust, Leftover. So sometimes if you're a concerned parent, chances are you've got a few in there. And, you know, if you go sixes on an air filter, that's like each person spending 50 bucks um, to get a good HEPA filter into a classroom. That can be a fantastic mitigator, especially in this day and age of um, lots of synthetic fragrances being used in classrooms as well. Just lightly educating teachers that, Yes, little kids can be a bit smelly, but uh, the stuff that's in those synthetic uh, timed sprays and things is really dangerous. And we can all make those little advocacy um, jumps to to clean up the environment for our kids. Yeah, those are great suggestions. And I think, um, you know, there are a good amount of resources online that can help parents approach uh, you know, principals or school boards or administrators to say, hey, have we thought about how to make uh, the environment a little healthier while our kids are in school? Mm, totally. Um, and if anyone out there is listening, I actually have a downloadable that is about uh, removing, I think it's, yeah, phthalates from um, your your child's environment in school. So the synthetic fragrances, terrible for the young female teachers that are often in these environments as well and their fertility. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we benefit a lot of people. As you said, you keep saying kids and their parents. Um, there's a yes. reason for that. We're all humans. We're just a bit bigger. That's all. Mm -hmm. mm. Yep, absolutely. And so looking around our homes, Christina, Three changes we can make as we look around to make a big difference when it comes to cancer risk. I think um, I think it's always important to say that um, you know, first of all, that it's not fair that we ask that we put this responsibility on moms who already have enough on our plates and are busy and stressed, um, and uh, so. Ultimately, 
you know, we should demand that our regulators do better and that we can trust that if we can buy a product at the store, it's safe. So I first always want to encourage people to, you know, take some of the kind of stressed out energy around this and direct it toward advocating for systemic change that would keep us all safer. Um, but in the meantime, because we know those things don't happen immediately, I think some of the, the simplest things we can do at home are um, investing in a good air filter, which you talked about. Um, uh, HEPA filters work really well. Um, they can be cost prohibitive, but there's a really cool DIY, DIY version where you can fit a HEPA filter into a box fan for a uh, very affordable Air yeah, the joys of YouTube. People can go exploring. There's yes. some fantastic tutorials on it. Yeah, if you Google HEPA box fan filter, it comes right up. Um, the second thing is investing in a good water filter. Um, some filters are better than others. I know uh, the Environmental Working Group, which does research and advocacy around toxic chemicals, recently tested a bunch of home um, pitcher style water filters to see which ones remove uh, PFAS, which is uh, or they're sometimes called forever chemicals. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of contamination of tap water um, with these chemicals here in the United States uh, and likely elsewhere around the world. Um, and they also increase your cancer risk. And they found three brands that removed 100% of PFAS from drinking water. Um, one is a zero water filter. One is by a company called Clearly Filtered. And another was a Berkey filter. Um, and those, those three brands also removed a lot of other kind of key contaminants from drinking water. And they're um, affordable and they're available online. Um, and the third thing I think is... Uh, swapping out some of your personal care products for less toxic versions. And this one can feel really overwhelming because ingredient lists are tiny and the words are really long. And, you know, I interviewed people. Well, there's for the your book first red have... flag there. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I interviewed people for the book who like have PhDs in organic, organic chemistry. And they were like, I can't even just like look at a label and know because it's um, it's complex. And there are things where like, you know, two ingredients separately might be fine, but then they can combine to release formaldehyde or something. So um, there are some really good uh, like third-party verification programs. Um, one is Made Safe. They do testing and sign off on products. They have a big database where of things they've tested and said, you know, this is free of this long list of toxic ingredients. Um, there's another one called Cleria, C-L-E-A-R-Y-A. -E that one is really cool. It's a, um, a Chrome browser extension that you add. And when you're shopping for products on a bunch of the big websites, I think they're on Amazon and Target and Walmart, um, and I think elsewhere, but when you're on a product page, it'll have a little pop-up that will flag toxic ingredients in a so personal good. care product. Yeah, That's it's fantastic. really handy. Um, and there's another one I like called the Healthy Living app. That one's made by the Environmental Working Group. Um, and I find it easiest. You can scan barcodes with that one. You can also use it for cleaning products and um, food. But I actually find it easiest to... So the way I did this 
as I was working on the book and getting concerned about <laughs> my own products and my own household um, was instead of like throwing everything away and starting over, which felt really overwhelming, I would just wait until I was about to run out of something and then use that as an opportunity to treat myself to a non-toxic upgrade. And so I would just go into the healthy living app, for example, type in mascara, find which ones they had given their seal of approval. Um, they use like a scoring system. Um, and if they'd given it a good score, then I'd go read reviews and try it. Um, so I think, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be perfect with any of these things. It's not even possible to be perfect. I totally it's more agree. about, yeah, it's more about like what's accessible. Can you take a couple of big swings at reducing your overall exposure, um, in ways that feel easy and accessible and can make you feel a little more empowered about this? hundred percent. Uh, I started our signature e-course nearly 10 years ago. Now next year, go low talks and it's 22 topics across everyday life. And you just focus on one thing at a time. Um, because I remember the very first time I, I ran it, I called it 30 days to your low tox life. And so there's like 300 women in there and everyone's freaking out thinking you have to get to this at the end of the 30 days. And I was like, no, no, go back. <laughs> this is absolutely not a 30-day project. I mean, you know, because we were talking about swapping mattresses and water filters and, you know, removing mold from your home. And some of these things can be um, years and years before you, you, you're you able to, you know, make that big ticket change, especially when it's like a mattress or something. And so I think it's so key that you brought up the um, just phase it out and then move on and, and, you know, and read reviews because so often, especially in the early days of um, going low tox, there were very few options, right? And so you didn't have a ton of reviews and people would try a deodorant. It wouldn't work. And they'd go, well, this whole low tox thing sucks. I'm going back to my mainstream thing. But now we have like 4,000 people that have reviewed it on iHerb or Amazon to give you the confidence to maybe waste a bit less money and find the high quality, high performance lower tox stuff faster um, and give you more confidence to keep swapping stuff out. Absolutely. Um yeah, that sounds like a fantastic resource. Um, I'm so glad that you put that together. Yeah, and yeah. I think I've also been suggesting that um, a, a one way to kind of amplify the impact of those shopping choices when you're swapping out, especially something like a mattress, but also, you know, even something like mascara is to take like an extra few minutes to let both companies know why you're making the switch. And if you want to do that in a public, like on social media, that can apply even more pressure um, because a company is not going to notice if you've been buying their mascara your whole life and you've always loved it. And then all of a sudden you stop buying it. Um, you know, they're not going to notice that on their own. But if you tell them that, especially in a public forum um, and say, I really wish I love your product. I wish it didn't contain toxic ingredients. I'd love to keep using it. Um, you know, that can really kind of amplify the impact uh, on that market pressure side. Mm. And as a journalist, can I ask you, because you would understand um, uh, potential for litigation when you publish something as well. Um, are we, do we have potential? Like if I've, I've got, I think something like 57,000 followers on Instagram. So it's a sizable little community these days. And 
if I did a carousel slide of the 10 brands I used to use of various products, you know, and then like publicly said, don't use them anymore, wish they would clean their act up. Am I then liable for defamation? Do you know? I'm going to. I'm putting you, I'm totally putting you on the spot here, but I think it's an interesting (laughs) question. It's a good question. Yeah. Hmm. So I am not an attorney, so Mm -hmm. I would not uh, take my advice as as rule of law. Um, And I I especially am not sure how um, that kind of litigation works in Australia, if it works differently than how it works here. But, um, you know, the only way. So if you were to say something like um, this eyeshadow will give you cancer that and you have a big following and you're like a public figure that yeah. could get you in trouble. Right. That mm. that would be grounds for potentially in the U.S. They might do pretty well if they decide to take you to court. Um, if you're sharing your personal choices, if you're saying, um, you know, there are ingredients in these products that um, have been shown to pose a health risk. So I'm not using them and I'm instead using these products that I believe are safer. You also want to, it's tricky to endorse something, right? Because Mm. there's this kind of like lack of transparency around ingredient lists. And so I think you would just want to be careful with your phrasing. I think rather than saying like this, this product's good for you and this product's bad for you. I think you'd want to be a little more personal about like, here's why I'm making this choice. Um, Mm -hmm. And that would still get the message across to the companies. It would still like, you know, educate your followers, but it would protect you a little. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for the advice there. That was, um, I was totally putting you on the spot, but I think it's an interesting, (laughs) uh, thing to explore because it really is helpful when we explain. I really uh, am taking that away from this conversation to up the ante there. I've often never brand called and really kept anything I used because I used to be in the cosmetics industry and perfumes um, in the earlier part of my career. And uh, one of the biggest learnings for me was that we used to learn about the one or two magical ingredients and they were always natural. It was always the rare algae from the Aegean Sea that was great for wrinkles that they'd found, or it was the um, the frangipani that had been, um, the oil had been extracted for the first time in a perfume. So the stories we were telling from a marketing perspective were always about amazing natural ingredients. But then when I started to do my research because I had some health concerns and cleaned everything up uh, and then had a baby, there's, that's always a magical learning uh, period for, for a, a young mom who wants to do their best for their kid. I was shocked to look back on those products and go, crap, two thirds of this ingredient list can actually be shown to be toxic to humans. And there I was proudly selling that moisturizer for $400 and it just kind of makes me cringe and cry but laugh as well that these people are still in business it's just it's it's a very funky world it's a really strange landscape I agree and I think I think that your kind of uh that backstory probably makes you uh, the best possible person to do this kind of advocacy that you're already doing right because you um you know, you were part of that world and you were doing, telling those stories. And um, so you, as opposed to, uh, I think sometimes this perception, there's a perception um, that the folks who like 
prefer non-toxic things are just like hippie, hippie yeah, yeah. crunchy types who maybe would never spend $400 on a moisturizer. So I think it's important. Um, yeah. What you said about uh, like, there is, there are high quality versions that mm. do not contain harmful chemicals. And you're kind of like an authority on that at this point. Yeah, we we certainly are spoiled for choice. I remember like the first non-toxic sunscreen I bought for Seb when he was a baby and you literally needed to be a CrossFit champion to try and spread this stuff across someone's skin. It was that <laughs> thick and terrible. I was like, really, is this all we've got? But now like green chemistry has come a long way and there are some fantastic options and beautiful textures and and it's exciting to see how it's changing and then books like yours come out that help us remember why we're all on this path and help gather more steam from people to join the movement um it 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 always makes me hopeful when we have these conversations rather than oh my gosh everything sucks like yeah it does in a lot of ways um but there's so much we can do and the more of us that do it the faster we get somewhere. And so I want to ask you then, um, parents, caregivers, clinicians, like there are so many of us that don't realise we're in an authority position in perhaps a more subtle way and we can all make a difference as well. Do you want to speak to that a little bit and, and what that looks like? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we absolutely should be doing a better job of educating parents and also expectant parents about how to avoid exposures and minimize exposures that could be harmful for their families and for their kids. Um, we talked about this earlier, but clinicians really need to have access to environmental health education. Um, there are some great continuing education programs that are specifically focused on environmental health. So um, if you have, if you're friends with doctors, uh, if you're very comfortable with your own doctor, um, that's something you can mention or encourage them to pursue. Um, we can also uh, contact our lawmakers. Um, here in the States, we're actually seeing really inspiring progress at the state level where states are doing some things that um, are happening really slowly at the federal level, but um, states are doing, are like banning toxic chemicals and consumer products. And then how that plays out here is that it's really tough for a manufacturer to make like one set of lotion to sell to people in California and then a different formula for everyone else. So that state law actually kind of winds up protecting everyone. So if there are ways you can get involved at the more local level, um, those changes can kind of uh, trickle up to uh, bigger uh, impacts rather than kind of holding out for big federal regulations. And um, I also included an appendix in my book of organizations that are leading this work. One of the easiest, easiest things you can do if you're busy and want to do something but don't know what is donate some money to some of the organizations that are already doing awesome work in this arena. Um, you know, there, many of them are small nonprofits that really punch above their weight and get a lot done. And so sending them a couple bucks can make a big difference in terms of kind of powering up and amplifying their efforts. Um, and then I should of course mention that you can read and share my book and uh, maybe even send a copy of my book to your 
lawmakers, your regulators and your representatives, because they get a lot of information from the chemical lobby and they do not get sent a ton of information on the other side that kind of represents the rest of us, unfortunately. A hundred percent. And I really love that you mentioned the lower, the, the, the lower levels of government and the local um, government, uh, because those people get far less papers on their desk than people right up the top. You're never going to get that memo to the president, but you could get it to a local elected um, council person uh, and, and have that conversation. And you never know whether that's going to be like, I've seen this so many times when I've given talks in um, corporate settings and then there'll be some banker guy who'll be like, ah, maybe that's why I had the stroke. That place was really moldy, you know, just like people's pennies drop. So you never know what conversation is going to ignite something in someone else. It's always worth having the conversation, I think is the point here. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's also a lot, um, you know, we've seen some like small municipal governments here enact policies about like banning pesticides in playgrounds and Mm. parks. And those kinds of things can make a big difference in your community. And then when lots of municipalities or smaller governments have have done things like that, um, it makes it easier for the next level of government up to say, oh, look, this has already been adopted. So obviously people like this. (laughs) Let's keep doing that. Um, so yeah, I think you're right that, that those small impacts can really add up. Mm, Big time. We'll have goats chewing down the herbs, the, um, the, uh, weeds in playgrounds (laughs) in more cities in no time. I think I read about that in Seattle or something. And I was just like, how brilliant. They're just running goats down nature strips to take care of the weeds instead of pesticides and herbicides. We have that here too. They scared me. They've scared me a number of times. I was out, I was out kayaking once and they oftentimes they use them in places with really steep hillsides where yeah, yeah, like, exactly. you can't get a person in with a weed whacker, a lawnmower or whatever. And I was kayaking on a, a river here and I just heard this like crazy crashing and screaming. It sounded like it was just goats. It was just goats who were on the hillside eating some weeds. <laughs> I love that we have been uh, waging a new war on cancer with our conversation today, Christina, (laughs) and we ended up talking about goats. That's perfect. It's so good. (laughs) Just goes to show there's a natural solution for most things that are toxic in our Mm -hmm. modern world, uh, goats included. So I really appreciate this this book. Uh, It is absolutely ripe for uh, waging a new war on cancer, the one that's actually going to make a difference because we're actually going to be starting to prevent some of these tragic cancers. And, um, and, and so thank you for writing it. And, and I hope it goes absolute gangbusters as we say in Australia and tons of people get their, their hands on it because it's a hopeful book as well as spelling out just how easy some of these changes are. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a lovely conversation and um, yeah, I appreciate everything you do. Thank you. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast 
and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.